Waiting can be difficult, can't it? Um, just the whole process of waiting. Uh, I know that uh, those who've finished their year 12 uh, find the whole kind of anxious period of waiting for the results of the HSC to come out difficult. Uh, maybe if you've had some medical test, uh, then the time that you have to wait to get the results from that test can be quite an anxious time. Uh, I imagine that there's a couple at church who are uh, finding waiting to get married uh, has its challenges. Uh, there are all sorts of times when it's difficult because we're forced to wait. I know that the pandemic has caused all kinds of frustration when it comes to waiting. Uh, we're locked in, we can't go out, we can't meet up with people. I, I feel for those who were kept in foreign countries, unable to return to Australia, up to two years before they could connect again with family and with friends. And maybe you know people like that. The, the waiting, and the waiting when you don't know how long you're going to have to wait for. It can be quite difficult. If you know, then you can count down the days. You can count down the years. You know what to expect. But I think waiting can be difficult for us as Christians as well. Uh, we live in the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. We are Christians who wait. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're, we're waiting for God to put all things right. We're waiting for the time when there'll be no more pain and suffering and death. And for many of us, it might well be that we meet Jesus after we die, uh, if Jesus doesn't return beforehand. Waiting is difficult, and waiting was difficult for the people of Israel. Uh, they were captive in a foreign land, and we're going to be reading about this, and they're looking forward to things being better. And we discover when we open the book of Exodus uh, that God is continuing his plan. Uh, one of the things you don't pick up, uh, and you'll need your Bibles today, by the way, because uh, we're not going to be printing Exodus. There'll be large chunks of it at times. We do have some Bibles as well, so we might grab them out of the, the trailer at some point and make them available. Uh, one of the things that you won't pick up in the English is that the book of Exodus actually starts with the word and. So throw out what you got taught from your English teacher. Don't start a sentence with the word and. Um, you can start a sentence, you can even start a book. The book of Exodus starts with the word and, and that shows us that we need to know something of what's gone before. So I want to paint a little bit of a picture uh, and to look at what's gone into Genesis, particularly around the promises and the plans of God. And I've uh, printed them out for you, just in brief form, on your handout. So first of all, when God creates... In Genesis chapter 1, he makes people who are in his image. And we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. You see the picture here of God creating people to populate this world that he's made for them. Uh, it's a picture that comes under threat very quickly because the man and the woman turn their backs upon God and death comes into the world. You see, death is the opposite of filling the earth and subduing it. It's actually the demise. It's, it's the 
counter. It's the curse that comes into the world, the opposite of the blessing that God created for man and for woman, that they should share together in harmony, in peace with God and with each other. Now there is pain, there is suffering, there's a curse. Uh, Labour becomes difficult and work becomes hard. Well, we, we see that this picture of God's plan, uh, if you were to scan through the book of Genesis, comes under serious threat in Genesis chapter 6 when God looks at the world that is made and sees the evil of people's hearts. And it's everywhere. And so God does a dramatic and drastic thing by flooding the earth. What we've got there is the uncreation. As God had separated the land from the water, now he just creates chaos. There's now water everywhere. And in the midst of this judgment on the earth, God acts again to renew his covenant with his created beings, people, to fill the earth and to subdue it, to multiply and to increase in number. And he does it by starting again. He starts with Noah and Noah's family, who of course are in the ark, who are protected from the flood and the destruction. And then when you pick it up, after the flood starts to subside, uh, you can read in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 15, I will remember my covenant between you and all the living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all earth. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. Um, here's just a, a little side plug. We, we uh, well, here I am wearing a, a Bonnie Hills t-shirt, a rainbow. I think we need to recapture the rainbow. Uh, it's actually God's covenant sign to us uh, that God continues to care for the world that he has made. That he's created male and female. He's united them together. They are special. And God promises not to destroy the world in the same way through flood. And we see the continuation of his plans and purposes here. Uh, Noah and his family come out of the ark and they are called again to be fruitful and to increase in number. Well, as so often happens in the book of Genesis, uh, you get promise and then you get threat. Now, the big threat is when people decide to gather together and build a city to make a name for themselves. And we read about the Tower of Babel where they build this city which reaches to the heavens, thinking that they don't, they don't need God, they just need each other. And if you read through that account, it's quite wonderful. God comes down to see what they're making. They think it's going all the way to the heavens, but it's really very pathetic from the perspective of God. But because of this human enterprise of uniting together against God, God separates all the people. He scatters them and he confuses them by giving people different languages. But he doesn't give up. And so in Genesis chapter 12, the action starts to focus on one man and then his family tree. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord has said to Abram, 
Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Friends, if you're not familiar with this passage, then this is one of the foundation pieces of the Bible. Uh, this is the promise on which the rest of the Old Testament stands. And you'll find it picked up in the New Testament as well. And we'll build on it as we keep working our way through. But God makes a distinctive promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham. A promise to give him a land, a special place, the promised land. He promises to make him into a great nation while he and his uh, wife are quite elderly and don't have any children. And he promises to bless the whole world through Abram. Now, you can read the challenges of this and so on, but keep that in mind. God promises a land, he promises a great nation, and he promises great blessing to all peoples on earth. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll pick it up uh, in verses 5 and 6. Uh, God takes Abram outside and says, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now again, at this time, no kids. Well, no kids according to the promise that God has made that there will be a kid, that there will be a, a great nation. So God is telling Abram to trust him because he's going to keep his promise, even though he doesn't have yet uh, an heir to the promise. He's told to look up at the sky and see that I'm going to bless you with a great nation as big as the stars are in the sky. It's extraordinary promise. Hold on to that. And then we work our way through Genesis. You get to read about Abraham and his family. You get to read about Isaac and his family. You get to read about Jacob and his 12 sons. And particularly the last 13 chapters of Genesis are focused on one son who was, well, a little bit of a pain in the backside, Joseph. Uh, he had dreams and the dreams annoyed his brothers. And so they fake his death. Uh, they tell the father that he's been killed. They sell him to slavery. And then you can read that he's taken by slave traders into the nation of Egypt. Now, this is a major turning point. See, what, what's going on is the people have gone into the promised land, Canaan, and then there's uh, one particular son in the line of the promise who's taken out uh, as a slave into Egypt. Now, it's quite an important piece. Uh, there's 13 chapters that talk about this. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt. Now, God in his purposes, uh, by the end of the book of Genesis, there's a famine in Israel uh, and Joseph in Egypt is able to manage the famine for the Egyptians by storing up food so that they are able to provide not only for their own country but for foreigners who come in. And, see, and what we see is that Joseph's brothers, 
uh, go across to Egypt for help. They take their father, Jacob, across as well. And at the end of the book of Genesis, you've now got Joseph and his brothers uh, and their families in Egypt. And Joseph says in Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for harm, talking to his brothers, God meant for good and the saving of many lives. So Joseph becomes a, a saviour figure in the book of Genesis. Now, of course, Joseph dies. And before Joseph dies, he tells his brothers that when they leave Egypt in the future, the instruction is that they are to take his bones back into the promised land. So all this is a long introduction, isn't it? Um, uh, we're now at the beginning of Exodus. So this is how Exodus starts. I'll just quickly recap a few things. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt uh, with Jacob. And he, he goes through the brothers' names. Uh, and the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So when Joseph and his brothers and their families go in, there's 70 of them. Now Joseph and all the brothers and all that generation died. Verse 7, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now, did you, did you get that point? Um, let me read it again with emphasis, all right? Um, let me read this. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. I mean, if you don't get the point, he labours it with superlatives in different language again and again and again. And against the backdrop of those verses that we've already read in Genesis, this is significant. This isn't just demographics, the early ABS taking a census. What we're dealing with here is the beginning of the fulfilment of the promises that God had made. Here are the people who are the great nation descendant from Abraham. Here are the people of God multiplied and filling the earth. But the problem is they're not in the promised land. Well, because they become exceedingly uh, numerous, they begin to pose a threat. When there's a change of government, everything changes. We lived for 28 years in Canberra. Uh, around this time, public servants are stressed. They may not have a job uh, in a few weeks' time. The printing people are rubbing their hands with delight. They get to produce a whole bunch of new business cards. As there's a change of government, everything changes. But Actually, was I predicting a change? No, I wasn't. All right. There's always some change in the government, even if there's not a party political change. But a new king comes in, uh, in verse 8, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Uh, and he came to power in Egypt and he said, Look, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. So what God sees as a blessing, this king, this pharaoh, sees as a threat. Come, he says, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous 
And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So Pharaoh, this new king, has what we read a three-pronged strategy to overcome how numerous and dangerous, therefore, the Israelites have become. Uh, let's look at each of them uh, just quickly. His first strategy is to make their work hard, effectively to put the Israelites into slave labour. Uh, we can read about this from verse uh, 11. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labour and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labour in bricks and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labour, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So just, again, hear the language there. Hard labour, ruthless, oppression. That's the strategy of Pharaoh. Let's just make life so difficult for them that they don't increase and multiply. Well, how did that strategy go? Verse uh, 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and, and spread. See, what Pharaoh thought was going to take control of the Israelites, God in his purposes uses for good. They multiply, they spread. Second strategy, well, he commands the Hebrew midwives uh, to kill any boys as they're born. Uh, let's pick this one up at verse 20. Uh, I'll read from a bit before that. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that a baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? And the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. So the first strategy didn't work. The second strategy didn't work. Uh, the midwives are more concerned to follow God than to follow Pharaoh. Uh, they are Hebrew midwives who show their faithfulness to God and God rewards them. They have children of their own. But here again, we see that God brings blessing. The people increased and became even more numerous. And so then there's a third strategy, which is, I guess, a, a little bit further on. So if the midwives don't get there in time and the kids are born uh, and you are having equal numbers of boys and girls that are born, then what's the next strategy? Well, look at what he says uh, there in verse, uh, where is it? Chapter 2, verse 1. Actually, he tells them in verse 22 of chapter 1, uh, he says, Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Uh, so this is a widespread command. Last one was to the two Hebrew midwives. This one's to everybody. Uh, if you see any baby 
Hebrew boys, you've got to throw them into the Nile. Now, throwing a baby into a river uh, is code for kill them. Um, that's basically what they're being told to do. Toss them into the river, into the Nile. Uh, I've seen archaeological pictures of uh, Egyptian times of the Nile. They've got crocodiles in the pictures. Um, I've been up in the top end of Australia. There are signs everywhere. Crocodiles, well, you can't imagine babies surviving. That's if the baby could swim, and it can't. So, again, he's, he's aiming here to overthrow, but I wanted you to notice what God does with this. So look in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. So uh, descendants of one of Joseph's brothers, Levi, the husband and the, and the father, and the husband and the wife, mother and father, and she became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child or a beautiful baby, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Now, that's pretty impressive, I think, to hide a baby for three months when it was first born. Uh, I don't know if she muzzled him at, from time to time or, or what it was. But then the strategy is to get a basket made out of papyrus, um, coat it with tar and with pitch, and then place the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And then the sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. I want to point out something about this word here. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket. If you've got your Bible open there, it's probably got a footnote. Uh, and the footnote to papyrus basket says the Hebrew can also mean ark, as in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. Uh, there are lots of words for basket. There are lots of words for boat. But this word only occurs here and in relation to Noah's family's uh, boat that housed all the two of every kind. I wonder whether we are meant to see that connection. As God brought judgment and salvation through the flood and the ark with Noah, so now there will be judgment and salvation through the ark and the one in the ark who is Moses. Well, it's a delightful story that you can read on uh, involving uh, the sister of Moses and uh, Moses' mother. Uh, I'll pick it up uh, at verse 7. Then his sister, um, actually I'll go back a bit. I'll read verse 5. It's, it's so good. The Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe and her attendants were walking along the riverbank and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. And she opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked that his sister, so it's Moses' sister, asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. Um, it's a delightful irony, isn't it? Uh, that, that here the baby is effectively being tossed into the river 
obeying Pharaoh's command, and yet Pharaoh's own daughter now pays Moses' own mother uh, to feed him and raise him. And then as it continues, uh, the child grows older and gets taken by his mother to Pharaoh's daughter and becomes her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Well, we're going to leave it at this point, um, and I just want to pick up on a number of things that we see here. Uh, you can read through the rest of the account, uh, and as we look through Exodus, we won't touch on every verse in every section. Um, you can read the account of Moses growing, uh, reaching a certain age. Uh, if you want a commentary, by the way, on this, Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's speech before he's stoned to death and he gives a whole historical commentary on the story of Moses. Um, he tells us, for example, that Moses was 40 years uh, growing up and learning the ways of the Egyptians. And then in this next section that we're not going to go into in detail, he goes to his own people and he sees them being oppressed. So he's 40 when that happens. So there's a lot of background to that. Uh, and then he, he, he kills the Egyptian and then falls out with his own people. He goes off to Midian. Um, and then we're told another 40 years transpire where he's in Midian before God reaches out to him. Uh, and we move into chapter 3 with the burning bush. So if you've got a children's Bible in your head where you've got this young bloke called Moses... Uh, who, who beats up somebody and, and kills them and then races off and, and meets a young bride and then goes and uh, straight back to Pharaoh and then leads the people through the wilderness. He's, um, he's a lot older than that. He's about 80 when he acts to save the people. And we'll get to that. A bit like Daniel, wasn't it? We, we forgot how old Daniel was when he was in the lion's den, that he was at least 80 so Acts chapter 7, it's a good commentary on this. Um, and I want to pick up a couple of things that are in this last section, however. So come with me to verse uh, 23. Uh, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out and their cry for help was because, sorry, their, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Here we see a picture where the Israelites are calling out to God because of their oppression. And God cares. Uh, he hears their groaning and he looks on them favourably and we're going to see the outworking of this in the chapters that follow. But I want to connect this back to the promises of God before we go any further. And so come with me back to Genesis chapter 15. So this is in Genesis 15 we've got... Uh, that's the passage where Abraham's told to look up at the sky and, and see that his descendants are going to be like the stars. But if we were to read on 
uh, and come down to verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. It's very easy to gloss over that statement. It kind of doesn't mean much at the time. And I wonder whether it meant that much to Abraham when it was first given. But if we come into Exodus and look back at that, wow, God had promised that this would happen. In God's plans and purposes, he shaped the whole proceedings where Joseph was sold into slavery and Joseph provided salvation for his own people. And now we're going to see God remembering his covenant promises and respond to the groaning of the Israelites favorably by raising up Moses to draw them out of Egypt to worship him. God had that planned. It didn't catch him by surprise. But for 400 years they had to wait. And the waiting can be difficult. Well, let me uh, point to some lessons I think that we can take from this. The, the first is this, that, that God always keeps his promises. If you read the Bible particularly the Old Testament at this point, if you read the Bible, seeing the promises that God has made and looking to find answers to those promises, you will on every occasion. God always keeps his promises. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, it says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they find their yes, their amen in Christ. So the focal point of all of God's promises, even the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, promises made to Moses, promises made to his people, promises through David and through Solomon and through the prophets, they all find their yes in Jesus. So you and I might be tempted to think, well, why does God allow all this to happen? Why doesn't he just come back and fix it all up? Why do we have to wait so long for the return of Jesus? And in 2 Peter chapter 1, chapter 3 and verse 9, we read that God is not slow as some people understand slowness. God is actually about keeping his promise. For in God's ways, a, a, a thousand years are like a day. And God isn't slow in keeping his promise because he's delaying so as to give people time to turn back to him. That's what he's doing. You see, if, if God had come back five years ago, there'd be some of us who would not have met Jesus. If, if Jesus had returned 10 years ago, there'd be some of us who wouldn't be right with God. So God is patient and he's delaying coming back. It's, it's painful. 
It's hard. But he's doing that so that people can turn back. God always keeps his promises. Second thing I think that we see here is that God works through weakness. It's incredible, isn't it? The, the might of Pharaoh. And if you, if you want to remember how mighty he was, did you notice the reference there to building the cities of Python and Ramesses? Um, this is the time of the pyramids, the time of the Sphinx. The, the might and the architectural genius that can put all of this incredible stuff together in Egypt, some of which still stands today, gets thwarted by two Hebrew midwives, by the Pharaoh's own daughter, by Moses' sister and Moses' mother. I think it's quite ironic that he wants to kill all the boys when it's five girls that show him up. You see, God's way is always to work through weakness. Uh, and if you want to see that expressed so clearly, then you look to the cross. There is the crucified Messiah. And yet, what we see as weakness, God demonstrates his power. It seems foolish, but it's wise. It's actually God's means of salvation. So God always keeps his promises. God works through weakness. And, and finally, I, I think this is a passage that reminds us to keep trusting in Jesus. And um, I think it reminds us to keep trusting in Jesus because of the book of Hebrews. And I'd like to finish by reading to you from Hebrews chapter 11. Has it suddenly got really quiet? What was it? Oh, the louvre's shut. Yeah, because the sun went down. Okay. Well, listen to this. Right? I'm going to read to you from that delightful faith chapter of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So the Levite, mother and father, they're a model to us of faith. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. You see, the book of Exodus is a story of faith. It, it's fundamentally a story of God, but the response that God's calling for is faith, to trust him. You've got to wait, but keep trusting God. You seem weak. We seem pathetic against the might of, of, of the intelligentsia, against the media, against the way the world thinks these days. But God works through weakness. 
the weakness of the gospel and he calls us to keep trusting him no matter what. So my hope is that reading through Exodus will move us to keep trusting God. And I think we've taken enough time. <laughs>